Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Uh, we're now on YouTube as well, so if you're listening to this uh, on an audio podcast on your favorite service, you can also check us out on YouTube. Um, today we're talking to a writer, director, producer, and actor with credits that include Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension, The uh, Taking of Deborah Logan, and Insidious, The Last Key. Uh, his latest feature, The Escape Room, will be released by Columbia Pictures in early 2019. He's worked with both Robert England, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger, and Britney Spears, but not in the same project. Uh, and he's a fellow Trojan alum as well. I'm pleased to have on Mr. Adam Robitel. Thanks for coming on, Adam. Uh, thanks for having me, Kevin. Um, now, I know you're originally from Boston. Yes. And I know you went to film school at USC. Uh, but perhaps you can tell us first sort of how it all began. How did you fall in love with filmmaking and realize you wanted to work in the entertainment industry sort of in general? I mean, the truth of it is I was always sort of like class clown and <laughs> wanted a desperate need for ego and attention. And so, and uh, I just, I knew I wanted to go to California. I didn't know why. I just saw palm trees and warmth and, you know, beautiful people. And so uh, USC was sort of just like happened to be the best uh, it just sort of unfolded. Like it wasn't even just like, oh, I want to go to film school. It was more, uh, let's go to California, and I got the best financial aid, and like it was. So it was really, it wasn't a strategic choice initially. It was just serendipity. It was serendipity. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I loved movies, and I wanted to be an actor, and I loved. I frankly, I tell people, I just wanted to be famous. I didn't. It wasn't even just right. like I just want to be a celebrity because they seem to have fun and right. you know and you know get free swag and you know. Right, because you actually, from what I'd read, you would, had studied film and acting at yeah. USC. Okay. Yeah, initially was a, uh, uh, studying acting for the first couple of years, mm -hmm. and, and um, you know, I. I, I I, I realized quickly that how, how hard it is, frankly, but also I, I started to fall in love with uh, storytelling and uh, I took a couple of classes at SC and it has such a great, amazing film school and it was such a great resource. And as I started to take classes, it was actually, no, this, this storytelling thing is really interesting. And, you know, you get exposed to great older movies and, and so it was a very organic process, but it, it came out of this need to, A, just get to my ass to California because Boston is freezing for five months out of the year. <laughs> Although I was just there and it's a great city and I, now I really appreciate it, but um, so much history. Um, but yeah, so, so I got to SC and then, uh, you know, I did the 190 class, which is like an intro sure. to film and... Uh, was exposed to some great, just, just, it really opened my eyes to the sort of the machinery of how to make a movie. Yeah. Right. Um, do you, because I, I don't detect any Bostonian in your accent at I all. Can t I can do the rest of the interview with my normal, <laughs> normal accent. You want me to talk the way I would normally talk. I mean, it's, it's, it's very easy for me to be hardcore with you right now. You but, know? but um, yeah, no, it's here. I'm hiding it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, my friends, my editor on uh, Escape Room, I started talking normal because my mother called me and I'm like, you know, he's like, what are you, who are you? Like Matt Damon's kind of like, <laughs> right. I'm like, this is actually how I would talk if I, you know, this is, this is the normal way I talk, you know. That's funny. So this is the normal way, but the yeah. way everyone in California, I discovered my eyes because I was telling you, I worked at a, a post office at USC and stamps were 40 cents. And I kept saying 40 cents, 40 cents. And this valley girl was like, oh my God, are you like from Britain? <laughs> and so I'm like, fuck, if I want to be an actor, I, if I want to be an actor, I got to learn how to right. talk normally. You know, so I, I learned how to embrace ours. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so what was your first job in the film industry? Uh, well, I did some irredeemably bad horror films as an actor. Uh, I, I really, I tell people to get down to the brass mm -hmm. truth of how I got to where I am now. 
I, I taught myself how to edit and when acting wasn't working out for me and I needed to make money, like I taught myself Final Cut at the time. I was like, you could get a Final Cut system and, and I started editing and I was really good at it. I got good fast and so I, uh, that's sort of what I would do. I did like some behind the scenes making of documentaries for movies, Dreamgirls and ultimately Superman Returns, which I went to Sydney to, to work on. Um, I did some documentary stuff and so that was my way in and, and frankly it was great for me because uh, it taught me how to tell a story through disparate footage that you know finding themes and finding ways to and also just seeing how a scene is built and and then would later inform when I started to write like why you can say more with a close-up and than, than a massive page-long speech so uh, so yeah it was it was uh, some editing stuff that I did initially right yeah I wanted to talk a little bit about the taking of Deborah Logan, which was sort of your first major project that you directed, you co-wrote, I know you had a hand in producing, it was also produced by Brian Singer of The Usual Suspects and The X-Men, um, also a fellow Trojan. Yeah. Um, how did you develop and get Deborah Logan sort of made? You know, what was that process like? Well, contextually, I'll say I, I, was, doing, I was doing a lot of making of, I, I just want to say just to, you know, it took me because I was working on, like, I Superman Returns, for example, I was doing all these uh, making of documentaries, mm -hmm. and I was teaching myself how to write at night, and it was, you know, fits and starts. I didn't finish my first script for, like, a year. Didn't quite know how the page should lay out. So, and I wasn't really outlining at the time. So it really took me, probably for your viewers at home, like, at least three years of reading scripts. And, you know, I had taken screenwriting classes, but I was dusty, and it's a muscle. And... Um, and so it took me three or four years and I finally I wrote a script called The Bloody Benders which I mentioned to you which um, Guillermo del Toro optioned and I was sort of in this holding pattern with him uh, waiting for him to direct the movie and you know I thought like suddenly like like Mana from Heaven like this huge you know luminary director who we all love you know sort of christens you a screenwriter that like you would just start getting jobs and that wasn't the case you know it wasn't like suddenly because what happens is even when you're looking for work and you're a young hungry writer you're still competing against huge produced screenwriters who are also looking for work and have kids to feed so it's really tough and so I and then I was like okay all right I guess I should make a movie because I it, it, like I said to you before it wasn't like I woke up like some people I know they they, they pop out of the womb and they're like I gotta direct a movie that wasn't, I don't like controlling people. I don't like telling people what to do. I like to just go, like, what do you want for lunch? Like, you know, decisions are not my fort. So let's put it that way. You know? <laughs> um, but so the, that was the long-winded way of saying, so then I realized I had to write something that I could do. And I love horror. Um, and uh, it's also low-hanging fruit. If you can make a horror movie cheaply, it can make, it can be a financially stable investment. So, so that was like, okay, okay. And then I, I started thinking about, uh, what scares me and Alzheimer's disease had always freaked me out and I had an uncle who would wander into backyards and he would get lost and he ended up falling out of a window um, and dying and so as a kid you heard these horrific stories about this disease and you didn't quite understand what it was um, and then I started doing research and I, I found this this woman who had early onset Alzheimer's she was like 50 years old and it was like a 60 minutes interview and she was um, she was talking about what it was going to be like to lose her mind and quite lucid and she would write notes on uh, mirrors and stuff to try to stave off this 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 cognitive decline and then it cut to her a year later like just a hard cut and she's in an adult high chair 
She doesn't recognize her husband, her daughter. She's going through fits of giggling and then rage and then like this, these weird like rises and falls in emotion. And I was terrified. And I, having worked with Brian on Superman Returns, I, I, and I'm working with Bad Hat Harry with his company, I said, you know, I showed them this clip. And I said, now imagine this as a documentary, but instead of the disease, something else more malevolent ultimately is underlying it. And so you use that as a way in. And I could see them all, you know, start to get really excited because it's like what I always find when I'm trying to write genre stuff is like taking something that's really grounded and then just, just a little bit to the right, you know. Right. Um, because we we all we all have these these fears and and so so that was the genesis of it and it took me it took me a long time I, I met my uh, a buddy of mine Gavin Heffernan who ended up co-writing it with me and there was just various ways of trying to get into the story uh, initially I was like oh do I do a hybrid how do I you know and then he really kind of gave me the permission to lean into it being fully found footage and at the t- that time it was starting to kind of go out of vogue in a way and by the time we showed it to buyers, I think there was the sense was if people want to go to a theater, you know, I think the paranormal activity thing was such a, uh, an anomaly. But to be honest, because of the Netflixes of the world that were coming on and it was like it found footage, is, it's much harder sell to go big because I always felt like Devil Inside made $100 sure. million. Dollars. It wasn't the greatest movie. You know, so it was the pure producer in me thinking, like, are you guys crazy? Like, you know, and um, so I'm jumping around a little bit. But so the, the, the logic was, what can I do cheaply? What can mm-hmm. I do really cheaply? What can be a really good performance piece? Because at that budget, or frankly, anything under five, even ten, you know, you're, you're really relying on performance. And that's your special effects. I mean, maybe you get one set extension or some cool monster moment, but... For the most part, you don't have the effects, and uh, and so yeah, it was a two-hander, and I found these great, these amazing actresses who were so incredibly like scary and intense and committed, and I just remember I'm totally jumping around, but like you know, grown men on our set who were, you know were freaking out at what Jill Larson was doing, and so it, for me that was so that it checked all the boxes, and so I, I and then we used Brian's name and the company's you know sort of mantle. To raise the money, I had a friend, uh, Krista Campbell, who had been in a couple of my uh, 2001 Maniacs movies, and she's a producer now who has tons of credits, and she and uh, Lottie uh, Grobman, they brought it to Millennium, and they ended up doing a minimum guarantee to, uh, to finance the movie, and um, yeah. No, oh, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, look, I, I have mixed feelings about the way that the movie ultimately was rolled out. And, you know, we had one early test screening, which was an abysmal failure. And uh, it had a really, really bad sound mix. And it wasn't, there's a money shot at the end of that movie, which ultimately, in my mind, I always said, you know, you need a couple of these images. And this is something Brian would always say is like, have a couple of trailer images that you, nobody's ever seen before. And in horror, that's really hard to do sure. because we've just, and now in a day where you can go online and see a Jordanian pilot be burned alive by ISIS, we're really cynical. And so I, this image of Deb's uh, jaw unhinging like a snake and trying to basically consume this little girl who has cancer, like that was like, we were so excited, but only because it's the movie starts in a very grounded, you know, medical right. documentary first, you know, and you're, and so by the time you get to that point, you're like, what the, f-? 
fuck did I just mm. see? And so, but what's interesting is that image became viral and then kids would go and see it on Tumblr and then go, what is this? And then go watch the movie. So it was like this great, and I always felt like because we had no marketing money, you know, that, that I needed something like that to draw attention to it. And, um, you know, we, like I said, we had a, and tell me if I'm prattling, you can stop no, me anytime, no. but we had a really tough first test screening and the money shots weren't in, like the actors, because it's a faux documentary, we, I had actors looking at blank computer screens and stuff. So the suspension of disbelief was just completely eroded. And we got a terrible score, you know, like a 38 or something crazy. Because uh, if your audience doesn't know, like you do this focus group and then they, they sort of have this crazy algorithm or however they do it to tell you what your movie is going to perform with different demographics. And... And a week later, I went into the Millennium office, and it felt like a funeral. And uh, they gave me this massive book of like all you know, and I just saw the number. And so that number was like a scarlet letter. Mm. I went home devastated. It was like three years of my life, and I went into debt making the movie. And then it got unceremoniously dumped to Netflix. And so I was like, okay, well, I tried that. That didn't work, you know. Um, and then over that first week in Halloween of I think it was 2014. It spread like wildfire and people really responded to it and the the biggest comment that I often get from people and fans is they were so grateful to just see a horror film that had real characters they weren't nubile teens smoking pot they weren't just throw they were nuanced and they had real human and that's the thing that I love the most is really trying to go what is the human condition how can I put that on the screen you know if you can take all the genre stuff out of it and still have a compelling story uh, then you've hit hit the bullseye, so, right? Yeah. Right, and we talk a lot about uh, finding your voice as a writer. Yeah, because like you said, the genre stuff—it's been done a million times before, and it, you know, some for some writers, that's what they focus on. You know, the the torture porn stuff—they really come up with new, innovative ways to kill people in a horror film. Yeah, but you know, your voice obviously is more nuanced. It's more about characters and and, and development and growth and and. Um, things like that, which I think for newer writers, trying to find that voice so that your script is not just in a pile of a, a bunch of horror films that just look and sound the same. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I can't really talk about the project too much right now, but there's a TV thing that I'm working on right now. Mm. And it's a very, it's based on a true uh, story, true uh, life rights kind of situation. And it's a very, very eccentric kind of character. And our showrunner, um, who we're working with, uh, you know, he read our pages. Basically, his, his assignment was talk about the relationship between... It's a sort of a father and son detective show. And we, because the true life stuff is so whack, like crazy cool and eccentric, we really were steeped in that. And when he read the pages, he said, look, you know, this is great, but, like, I want to feel some of your, like, what are you, you guys bringing to it? Like, personalize it more. So it's funny you should say that. Because with the taking... Of Deborah Logan, Deborah was so much based on my grandmother, who was like my this great, amazing force in my life, and like my mom in many ways, and and uh, and she's the one reason I went to USC, frankly, because I wanted to go to UMass and party with my friends. And she's like, <laughs> no, no, put that over there, you know, like you know, go to California, you know, uh, and um, so from using you know the switchboards and and very vital woman who had a lot of independence and a lot of the mannerisms of 
the pr pride that she had, all of that was in the character, was based on my grandmother. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really, you, and you gotta, you gotta dig deep, like, because sometimes you have great upbringing and family life, and my family are great, but they're a little crazy. And, <laughs> you know, you gotta use what, what's around you, because otherwise it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it's always gonna feel a little stock, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, that, and that's, the, that's the trick. Um, and I'm still learning. I mean, I'm still, you know, you, you try to you, you try to write what you think is going to work in the marketplace. And I'm in this weird place now where I've done Insidious, which is a, obviously a massive franchise, Actually. and then Escape Room, which I think is, is going to be a, a, hopefully a you know a big commercial kind of vehicle. Um, but you're always you're always like, is it four quadrant? Will it? Will it, you know, will the kids in the middle of America, the 16-year-olds are on their cell phones, will they like it, you know? And it's, 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 it's tough, you know? You look right. at a movie like, um, uh, my brain is farting right now, um, the, the A24 one that just came out, uh, oh, Hereditary, oh. which I loved, you know, and critically just, just so well lauded and, and just really creepy, and, but the audiences didn't, didn't like it as much, you know, and so, it, and you ask yourself, why is it because of the, the James Wan level of like constant sort of like hitting them with those scares and, you know, was it too intelligent? Was it slow in places? Like what, what's the disconnect between, and you know, those two things, I'm jumping around way so much. No, no, it's totally too not. much caffeine. Sorry, people. No, no. I mean, the whole point about having the conversation is, you know, finding other interesting tidbits and yeah. And, you know, that's the, the the best answers are ones that answer the question, but also give you other information. Yeah, so that's great. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, if you're gonna make a theatrical movie, you have this obligation, you know, to try to hit a big audience, and you know, sure. they're gonna spend thirty or forty million dollars on P and A, and it's just like, and I see it with the studios now. It's like there's there's Marvel movies, and then right. there's the Jason Blum high concept genre stuff. And sure, everything else is going away. And and you know, um, you know talking about big audiences. Uh, you had mentioned um, Four Quadrant. For those listeners out there, watchers out there who don't know what the Four Quadrants are. Yeah, so Four Quadrant is just really like being able to hit all the different demographics from your, you know, your older, older couples on a date to like young teenagers and everything in between. And, right. and so what happens is a lot of times movies get watered down and, you know, you're, you're, you're really trying to, you'll, you'll over explain stuff because you're trying to make everything clear to the audience. Sure. and. And it, it gets, and, and with the focus groups, again, you know, it's this, it's, I understand the value that it brings, but it also, if you ask a hundred people in an audience what the, if they want chocolate ice cream, they're going to want chocolate ice cream because sure. that's the only thing that they know. But and there'll you, always be one or two. It's like, I don't want chocolate. I want vanilla. And you yeah, know, messes everything. yeah, but, but you know, and, and that's the thing is it's like if, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, did what well, he wasn't making it. He was like, people will want this because they don't know they want it yet. Right. You know, and right. that's, that's, that's tough. And, you know, when you become Christopher Nolan, I think you have the leverage to say, you know what I want to do? I want to do a movie called Inception. And there's going to be three levels of brain of, of dream space. And we're like, what? Okay. Yeah. But for the most part, you, as a filmmaker, you are a business person too. And I, and my agents even like now are like, you know, you can, you can go do an elevated movie. And, and I, and I, I will admit I'm chasing that box office right now. Cause if you do a couple that do well, then you can go and do what you want to do, you know? And so 
Um, and I, it's, it's a trap I see people fall into where they, and then, and then they start chasing those bigger budgets and stuff. And I, I, I want to get to a place where I can do things that challenge myself, you know? Right. Right. Especially yeah. with lots of, uh, newer, younger filmmakers after one or two successful films, getting a franchise like, a, you know, a star Wars or like an Avengers, you know, those kinds of things. And you're like, wow. Yeah. And, and. Those movies aren't, you know, you're you're working with mega producers who uh, who run the show. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, and that's the sad truth too. As as painful as it is to make a a, a million dollar movie in twenty days, it's the best. It's the most autonomy you'll ever have, you know. And uh, the bigger they get, the more cooks in the kitchen and. You know, there are a lot of bad notes out there and a lot of bad ideas that you have to kind of fend off and, and say, no, here's why that doesn't make sense. And, you know, here's why the movie needs to be this. And it's, it, it is exhausting. And so I don't, you know, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Right. <laughs> um, so um, before we move on from Deborah Logan, I know that, again, you had the way you sort of got it made. Um, was it more, and I know you sort of created it, wrote it with the intention of directing it so that you could get it made, that yeah. kind of thing, but has it been your experience? Cause you've also written things, um, that you haven't like paranormal activity, the ghost, key, uh, the ghost dimension where you didn't direct it. Yeah. That was a movie that had been, uh, in production for a long time. They were they were a year into production on Ghost Dimension with oh, another good. another writing or another writing team, right? And um, it was a mess. It just was incoherent, and mm -hmm. and it's not their fault. I think ultimately there were some powers above them that were sort of navigating and, and sort sure. of making them go down crazy rabbit holes of story and stuff. And I, I always joke, you know, you're in trouble when your found footage movie has ILM doing your special effects. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know. Um, and so we came in just as these young, this young team to, uh, you know, Chris Landon, who's a, a dear friend of mine and, and is one of the most talented, prolific guys I know. And he, he got us, Gavin and Heffernan, who wrote The Taking of Deborah Logan and I in for our first studio job. Mm. And we were so excited and and, you know, they had these three little McMansions up in, I think it was like Thousand Oaks or somewhere. And, uh, yeah, and we would write pages and then they would go shoot stuff and then we would edit it and then write pages. So it was this really weird, um, uh, unorthodox situation. And we, yeah, and we, we tried to make the movie just cohesive, frankly, and watchable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you've also directed a film that you didn't actually write, which was Insidious, The Last Key. Right. Um, before we jump into that whole process, um, have, in your experience, having written films, you know, been hired to rewrite and written scripts, directed stuff, um, so you're obviously uh, the multi-hyphenate, um, is it harder for those writers out there who want to direct to sort of push that agenda? Like, I wrote this and I want to direct it as well. And if so, what advice do you have for them to sort of you know, overcome some of the difficulties it is to, try uh, to, to sell that package as opposed to a script? You know, first of all, even if you have a little bit of an inkling to direct, I think you should, frankly. But this is just, whatever I say, I should say as a disclaimer, is just my experience. Mm -hmm. But writers, I think, have the har hardest job in the town. I mean, there's no question. Anybody who sat and stared at a blank page 
that's the hardest it's the hardest job i'm not gonna i'm not gonna belittle you know or my dp who actually works the hardest on the set maybe with my ad being a close second i'm usually sipping coffee and <laughs> eating pastries but right. but the nobody has a job unless the writer does their job and um and but they're not respected and they're not they're not treated with the worth that they deserve um and so i i would say I, and I tell my writer friends now, even if you don't want to direct, you know, the best situation for you is not to focus on trying to go sell a spec because I think that's magical thinking. And the best thing you can do is go and get a movie made. And if you don't want to direct, then find a director, link up with a director, don't write in a vacuum and go find that money, whether it's $500,000, $250,000 or and, and my biggest advice is to really focus on something that's smaller that you can make for that budget. You know, you don't want to do a sweeping war epic for right. your first movie. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to get five million. You maybe could get three million for your first film. That's pushing it. Like in this day and age, like a million and under. You know, so it has to be confined and use those use that confined uh, quality to your advantage. You know. Um, and, uh, no, I, I, look, I, it was still hard. And even with w back in the day, we used Brian's name to raise the money. It was still hard, you know? And, and so I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, it's a walk in the park. I think you need to, you know, you need to show up. You need to have first starts with a great piece of material because if it's, if, and, and if you think it's like your first draft and you want to go out and raise the money, I'm sorry, I'm here to tell you right. it took, it took us three years of developing and, and fits and starts and, it takes a long time. I'm always dubious of people who say, I wrote this in two weeks and well, good for you. It's probably crap, you know? <laughs> right. you know, um, unless you're Quentin, you know, and sure. you're some savant who, and you know, um, but so you have to put in the work for the script. And then I, I think also if you want to direct, you have to, you have to do a short, like show them that you have some sort of skill set, you know, um, but I, I really do believe if you're passionate about something, you can find that money and you can, for example, I was told by every, and I had big line producer friends who, who have done great, really cool movies who told me I shouldn't try to make the taking of Deborah Logan for less than two and a half. Like I, I would compromise and it wouldn't be my vision. And, and I listened to that for like a year. And then I met this guy, Rene Besson, who had done uh, a lot of Millennium movies. And he came in and he kind of just rolled up his sleeves and he said, here's how you do this. And he was, he was great because he was not only a line producer, but he understood story. And here's how you can make this work. And he, you know, he would go in with our, like, a grip, grip truck guy, like, in North Carolina. And, like, he would, no, it's X amount of day. And Rene would say, let's take a drive. And then they would come back and they would have a deal. You know, he's that kind of a person. So, um, but, I, you know, it starts with a great script. It starts with a great lookbook. You know, it starts with maybe some uh, proof of concept, you know. Um, and then you get to find, find where the money is. And the thing is, in this town, it, it is a small group of people. You know, these, these independent equity investors everybody knows everybody and so it's a small group now there's a new rich dentist who comes to town every couple of you know there's there are those types who will who want to be in the business who want to be on red carpets and so you need to find uh, those types of people and it you know think about commercial stuff like i hate to say it i'm a i'm a it's a bald you know a grasp it it's a business and 
with the taking of Deborah Logan, I knew at least we could recoup and we could, you know, it could, it, there's a place for it. And if you're doing, you know, your 16th century monk love story, you know, right. it's probably not going to sell. And so I, I, it, that's not to say that you can't find originality, but you've got to be practical because it's, people aren't going to want to lose money, you know. Right. Nobody wants to lose Nobody money. Nobody wants to lose money. <laughs> right. And look, films are bad investments. They're not the best place to put. If you're shrewd about your money, you put them. You put them in treasuries, or you, right. you know. You, you, so, so you got to think with both sides of the brain right. in that respect. Um, right. You sort of explained the Deborah Logan process, um, but two things sort of came to my mind before, like that you, that you had been talking about, that come before that. They they're the prelude to that. Um, one you had mentioned. Um, which is your uh, actual, uh, your script, The Bloody Benders. Yeah. Which you had option to get uh, Guillermo del Toro, so, which has happened before the taking of Deborah Logan, which is interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, and secondly, how did you land your first agent or manager to get that script into Guillermo del well, Toro's hands yeah, to get Yeah, that so th this, this comes with like the bigger, the, the other bigger thing. You know, I went to USC. I think if, you, if you're serious and look, I mean, you can hear this on script notes and I need a John August, I mean, Craig Mays, and they always say like, if you're serious about, it's true. If you're serious about working in the industry, you have to get here because mm -hmm. you need relationships. You need to meet people. And I knew Alex Garcia, who through Brian, who had run Brian's company, who now is, uh, is a big wig over at Legendary. And I sent him the script for the Bloody Benders, and he thought it was really cool. He's like, we, "This is like a really twisted historical thriller. Our version of a historical thriller at Legendary is Clash of the Titans." So, you know, uh, but he passed it on to a producer, who uh, Don Murphy, who who read it and was like, "Who's doing this?" And you know, immediately glommed onto it. And he was the one who got it to Guillermo. And through the course of that little bit of momentum, um, uh, APA reached out and I knew an agent there who's a partner there, David Saunders, and so he took me on. But it's, it's, it's that chicken or the egg, and so you need the great piece of material, you need some sort of relationship that can slip it to somebody. You know, if you go blind submission to an agency, you're going to have to go through the cabal of readers and junior executives and so forth. and so. I would say that you know you need those personal relationships. You need to go to the barbecues. You need to go up Runyon. You need to go to mixers and WGA things, and and that's how you it you put a face to a person. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so so you have to figure out ways of getting read, and that means a being here. It means it means going to writers groups. It's it's you know, using Facebook in a polite but not stalkerish way. Sure, you know it's doing all those things, and and then having the goods. And if your if your shit isn't ready to be read, don't send it because you have that one opportunity. You meet that one person, and right. you know it's and so um, yeah. So the chain of events for me were Alex sent it to a producer, this guy Don, and he ended up. Who's you know he sent it to Guillermo and Guillermo really loved it as did Roger Avery who uh, who read it and was like just thought it was super cool so I was like and, and finally after you know ten years of fits and starts and and all that I should say just for the on the craft side like it took me a long time to realize that I needed to figure out structure and I would I'll, I wouldn't outline and 
my friend Martin, who's probably going to watch this. Hi, Martin Aguilera. <laughs> um, he uh, he is uh, he's a great writer, and uh, we had this constant debate about like you know outlining versus just freewheeling it, and um, you know I, I had to learn that there there was a math involved and and uh, in in, a, in the structure, and how do you you know are you hitting those beats? You're hitting those turning points, and so I don't know if that answered your question, but. You get to physically be here and you have to have those relationships, you know, and the agents tend to show up when there's a deal on the table. Right. I mean, that's the bald truth of it, you know, and more often than not, I'm getting work through my relationships, you know, uh, Chris Landon, who, who I knew socially and was friends with, who, you know, he kind of blew up and um, he liked my first film. And that's the other thing I'll say, getting back to making your movie now when I go in as a writer or some or something, they've seen the movie and they're fans of it. So I don't have to... I'm not going in with such a need to sell myself now. I can say, oh, that's awesome. You really got... You know, you, you dug it. And that's a big weight off my chest, you know. And, you know, we're going to go out and pitch our first TV thing. And my co-writer and I, we're a little nervous. You know, we're not seasoned pitchers. and but we have a great idea, you know? And so yeah, if you go in with that mentality of it's yours to lose if you don't want it. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, we get this question all the time. How do you know your material is ready? How did you know Deborah Logan was ready? How do you know, uh, you know, the Benders was ready? How do you know when a script is ready to be handed to somebody that's not, you know, connected to you in your circle? Yeah. How do you That's know? a great question. I mean, you, look, you're never done. You only only abandon the work, I think, on some level. Uh, the first thing I, I tend to do is is really go through with like a shorthand of people, my friends, that I and I let them read it. And I do, you know, I, I, and I, then you have to collate. You have to separate the noise. You have to look at the recurring notes and say, what are the themes here? What are the patterns? Where are people getting stuck and hung up? You have to work through those because if there's more than four people saying that maybe the pirate shouldn't also be a space cadet, like, you know, that's an issue. Right. But you also have to be true to the story you want to tell. So I, I, it depends on each project and what you're writing. But I, I think it, a good s school of thought would be, you know, at least two revisions. You go through, collate, get 10 people to read it, beg, beg, borrow, steal, like bring them to dinner. Chick-fil-A, whatever, maybe not Chick-fil-A, um, uh, but, you know, and, and so you, you, you go through that process, and then, yeah, it depends, I mean, because it, it's true, you know, look, some people might write a first draft, and I'm going to, you know, it might be close enough to read, a lot of times, like, what the, the agents will do is they'll want to, it still needs another revision, but they'd rather try to go get it set up somewhere, so, but when you're, when you're starting out, I think it's a different story, where you want it to be as good as it can be. If you have things spelled wrong and poor grammar and, and formatting, like that's just, just, you know, you're an amateur, you right. know, and you need to, and, and, and constantly be like, I, even now I force myself to read a script just outside of what I'm doing every one script a week. And that adds up, you know, and it gets logged and, and you do feel the growth. You go back and look at stuff you've written a couple of years ago and you go, Oh wow. Okay. You know, because you're, you're really, it, it, it's a muscle. And I, I find, because I've been in two movies back to back, that it gets soft. Like now I'm trying to get back into it and I'm banging on some pages. And 
oof, it takes a while to kind of get the machinery going again. Right. As opposed to if you're you just you do running those five miles a day, then you're you it's much less it's much less intimidating. And I, I will say to, to your viewers, for whatever it's worth, every day when I start, it's the worst pit in my stomach. Like I just feel <laughs> I want to do anything but go and sit, and it's this irrational fear. I have to leave my phone in the car because, and then I feel really anxious because I don't have my phone and I'm walking to the coffee shop and I just feel so, but then I settle and it's, and I'm, a friend of mine who's a novelist, he often says, just sit down and just give yourself permission to write a paragraph. Just say what's going to happen in this paragraph. And if that's all you get, it's all you need to get that day. Don't put a thing on your, you know, of some, some burden on yourself as to what you need to hit. I like to try to get five pages a day if I can, but sometimes it doesn't flow, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I know there's a lot of back and forth about writer's block, but I've definitely, it's been a lot of paralysis by analysis, you know. Uh, and you have to be careful of, of getting into that syndrome of perfection because it's not going to be perfect the first time. So let it be bad. You know? Right, right. You know, that's uh, good advice. Um, having been a writer, having been a director, having been both and a producer, um, how does that experience differ? Like doing both in one versus one versus the other? Like what specific challenges are there for, you know, doing one or the other or both? I, I, I really think you should try everything. And if you're not, you should, writers should be on set. If you're really insular, two things, you know, if you're not actively on sets and you don't know how a movie's put together, because I, I was having this conversation last night, like the script is a, is a fluid document. It's not Hammurabi's code. You're going to get on set, you're going to lose a location. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're gonna have to cut days because of the schedule and so it's constantly changing so you can't be precious about the thing you wrote a lot of times a writer stuff that you wrote just is stilted and you'll hear it in the table read and it just doesn't sound right or the voice is wrong or an actor's bringing something else to it, it just doesn't work and so to answer your question I think writers and I'm the type, a lot of directors are intimidated by writers they don't want the screenwriter to be around and I think that's just such a mistake but uh, a lot of writers need that empirical feedback of hearing their stuff be performed and, and you know, the blocking. And you start to realize how much we, end, we tend to over-explain on a page and, and why things are extraneous. And so less is more, you know. And so, a lot, yeah, a lot of writers, I think, don't have that, you know. And, and coming from editing, again, it's like there's a, you come in later in the scene, get out earlier, you mm -hmm. know, think all those things that you don't really understand until you start watching it and watching it being performed. And so uh, it's it's been really valuable to me to, to do to do both. And and coming from the acting side, studying acting and knowing, understanding subtext and behavior and how we're masking so much of what we're trying to say and. And, and, and really dialing in on what, what we're seeing visually. I mean, what is the actor saying? What are they actually doing? And not just thinking about dialogue because an amateur is just gonna write a bunch of dialogue and not be thinking about what's the, the visual medium of, of right. film. You know? So you're a veteran of the <laughs> genre. Of, what are some keys or tricks to making a really scary movie? You talked about it before about sort of uh, making it sort of real life and yeah. then sort of taking them down a, a journey yeah. into that, which makes it more scary as opposed to just being like, there's a haunted house on the hill kind right. of thing. 
Uh, but what are some other sort of, like if, if somebody wants to, you know. Yeah, well, the first step to making a, anything scary, I think, is to relatability. If you don't care about the characters, then mm -hmm. you're not going to be invested in what's happening to them. And so I try to start with really plunging the audience head first into the character's world and really buying into whatever they're, you know, got to find my son, got to, my grandmother has Alzheimer's disease, and really f emotionally connecting and pairing with them first. Because if you don't have that, right. then... And you know, you look at like James Wan stuff, and a lot of a lot of the the Conjuring or any of these or these Poltergeist or any of these movies that we love, The Exorcist, it's it's a family drama first, right? It's about a family unit that has to, and it doesn't mean it needs to be a nuclear family. It can be you know a couple of college buddies on a trip, but there's a family unit that happens, and uh, and from there, I think you you know you take real world grounded fear stuff that. I, look, I was raised on ghost stories, and I'm terrified. Like, my grandmother scared the crap out of me with these horrifying stories when I was growing up about, a, you know, a talking board and an evil demon that lived in the house. And so I was raised in all that kind of stuff. But as I got older, and I started to kind of look at Judeo-Christianity, and the devil sounds kind of silly, and I mm -hmm. think humanity is far scarier. But uh, that doesn't mean I'm not going to use, you know, ghosts and demons <laughs> and stuff to manipulate an audience. But... So yeah, starting with relatability of a character, and then I think the second component to that is really delving into psychology. So whether it's a demon, a ghost, or a killer, using people's psychology, because there's nothing scarier than the, our own self and the things that we think about in our you know, late at night and, and our own mortality. And so if, you can ta if the movie can have, if the story can have some type of underlying psychology as to you know, whatever's that thing that... that that cross that you're because we all have things that hurt our, our you know our deepest pain um and then from there there's like there's real manipulative kind of jump scary techniques that you do and james wan is the master of them and you can go watch the conjuring and and, and understand why they're so good and that's pre-charging a scene setting up that there's something in the room doing misdirects, you know, setting, setting a rhythm with long takes and mm -hmm. sounds and, and all the stuff that we love from horror films. And you can di those you can do a class on and just dissect why a jump scare will work and right. why you try to do it not in a cut, but like within camera so that the audience... I remember the scariest scene for me in Poltergeist was there, I think they were with the mom in the kitchen and she pans over and... Uh, the, chair scrapes or something she pans back the camera pans back over and now all the chairs are stacked in this weird telekinetic force field and it's so uncanny and M. Night Shyamalan did the same thing in Sixth Sense which is like he pans over and then all the the cabinets are open mm. and it's the same device and it gives you that sense that something magical happened because there wasn't a cut so those are the kinds of like little techniques and stuff and um but does that answer your question? It does. Yeah. And I think you make a great point. I think a lot of newer writers, uh, they love film and they have seen probably a lot of film and then they just sort of write their script. And I think what you have done a great job of illustrating is the sort of analytical aspect of this is a business and if you want to write something like The Conjuring, you should watch The Conjuring, read the script, break it down, see if you want to do something similar find out what works in what you know and how they did it so that you can sort of incorporate some of these elements 
um, rather than just, oh yeah, there was a scary part and I'm going to write some, something scary, yeah. but really sort of break down, you know, why these characters, why you feel for them, what is it about them? Right. And I, I think, you know, so you're, you, you answered quite well. Yeah, I mean, one of the hardest parts about it, because I've been well-versed in supernatural movies, is like, why do people stay in the house, right? And so right. Insidious, for example, Insidious, the first movie, 35 minutes in, 40 minutes in, they just bail on the house. They just leave. They're like, peace out, bitches. Right, you know? right. And, and um, that was just like, oh, okay, that's cool. Right. You know? and, they did something uh, normal people would normal do. Normal people would do. Right. So many people with the taking of Deborah Logan were like, we loved when the sound guy just took off. Right. And like, well, yeah, because that's what you would fucking do if a woman was levitating on cabinets and right. cutting you and cutting her neck. And, you know, you would be like, this ain't worth it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going exactly. go back to Arby's, you know. Right. So, you know, you, and that's the other thing that I think with writing in general. It's like if you're going to write genre stuff, it's something Brian always would talk about. People have to behave the way they would behave in real life. Sure. If you found a fucking body in the back of your house, you call the cops. Right. Like, you're not going to go. And so you have to... Even, I wonder who did this. Let's investigate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to just, as extreme as the shit that's happening, yeah, they have to be as honest as possible with right. the reality. And I see that so often with, with horror films where people just don't respond proportionally. It depends on the tone, if it's a campy horror sure. film. But, you know, for the most part, they don't, you know, if somebody's going to get killed, like, honor that, you know, honor, like, really, like, what does that look like? You know, it can't be a non-event. And... <laughs> so, yeah. Um, now we've tiptoed around the bloody benders, um, and I, I think it's we we haven't really explained it. I don't think that well, um, but it's based on America's, America's first serial killer family. Sort yeah. of, it's it's not a western, but it's sort of set in you know that old western time period. Yeah, um, and it's. I love Westerns. I think that that sounds amazing. But maybe you can explain a little bit about just what that is. Yeah, I was looking for something out of the history books to, to, to write a genre movie on. And I came across this incredible story out of the American West. It was 1871 in Kansas. Kansas was known as Bleeding Kansas at the time. There was a lot of bloodshed. And they had the Homestead Act, which said... If you go and you claim a parcel of land and set up, the government will subsidize the first year or whatever. So it was a, it was a means to draw people from the cities of the East mm -hmm. into Kansas to start to gentrify. And so this German immigrant family, the Benders, uh, who nobody really knows their, their ancestry other than they came. They spoke the Low Dutch. So I think they were not Low Dutch. They were Germanic. Um, and so they set up shop and they premeditated this. There was a father, a mother... Uh, a, a weird brother, sort of an inbred brother, and then this beautiful young girl named Kate Bender. And they built this one-room inn on the Kansas prairie with a Sweeney Todd-esque trapdoor underneath the table. And they would invite men to late, who, who would get to the Bender claim. And it was beautiful. They had a cherry orchard and like a little sign with a misspelled word, grow cry, as opposed to grocery. Hmm. And... Um, they would invite the guy in. He'd be like the guest of honor, and they would sit him against a, you know, a canvas, a flat canvas curtain that was once their stagecoach. And then Kate would basically seduce the guy, get him all sort of hot and bothered, and then the father would come up behind them with a sledgehammer <laughs> and hit them right on the head. And so they killed twenty-five people before wow. vanishing without a trace. 
So nobody knows what happened to them at the turn of the century. And then their coup de grace was they killed the brother of a Kansas state senator. Mm. So he rolls into town because he had had a letter from his brother from this county in Kansas. So he gets there with his posse who had fought in Antietam in the Civil War. And he says, I'm going to overturn every claim in this county until I find my brother. The benders had heard this because they were at the church at the time and they fled. And so the... the, the um, uh, the senator and his, his, his men on horseback, they get to the Bender claim late in the day. And they don't find any bodies, but they find a slick of blood in the, on the granite slab beneath this trap door. And it's very unsettling. And, he's discuss- and they said it's, they described it as the stink of Antietam. They could smell mm. decomposition, but they couldn't find bodies. And so later in the day, and this is true, he took his bayonet out of disgust and he stabbed it into the cherry orchard and he heard bones crunch. Mm. And he pulls up his bayonet, and his brother's scalp is on the end of his bayonet. And they discovered, and they disinterred a giant charnel pit of like 200, or 200, that would be a lot of bodies, yeah. 25 bodies. And uh, a little desiccated child's body, mm. amputated body. It was really grisly. And there's these epic pictures of people, because then the word spread like wildfire that they have these crazy serial killers in, in the area. And people from all over the country came, and they each took a piece of the Bender Hotel, like oh. little pieces of wood. And so I love, there's a moment in my script where you start to see the mythos of the Benders, because there's pieces of the wood and different pieces of mantle pieces and stuff. And so... So yeah, I was obsessed with her, and she was very clear to me reading the, all the history books that she she was smarter than the others, and she controlled them. And she worked in a she worked in a downtown saloon, and was very she was a purported uh, uh, astrologer. Mm. Again, simple hayseed country folk, and she was smarter than them. So she was manipulating she was manipulating a lot of the men in the town because it the, the business of death. Excuse me, my eyes like. You know, it was clear that because of their operation, she needed help. And so various men that she had under her favor would get rid of the horses and carriages. And, and so there was like a great little sort of Venus flytrap in the middle of the Kansas prairie. And there's a museum in Kansas with the three sledgehammers. And you see the oh, wow. sizes of them, you know. And so it's this epic, iconic thing. And... It was very easy for me to want to do the torture porn horror film version yeah. of that, but I wasn't interested in that. And so at the top of the movie, I, she meets this emancipated slave, and he's the only guy in town who doesn't try to force himself on her. He's learned. He went to Wilberforce College, and he's, it, it deals with race because he's the only you know, African-American in the town, and they're really you know, like basically Trump voters. Sorry. Maga. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and he teaches her how to read and write and love Emily Dickinson. So it's this great, weird Coen Brothers relationship set against this grand Grignol kind of like Sweeney Todd murder on the prairie. And it's a thriller, ultimately, at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Uh, and I do answer sort of what happened to them, but in a very cool sort of usual suspects kind of way. So, oh, very cool. Yeah. Bringing all the way back to Brian Singer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is, you know, if you haven't seen The Usual Suspect, it's an amazing film. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's, it's a classic. Um, uh, okay. Escape Room. Your yes. new film. Yeah. The Escape Room is scheduled for release February 1st, 2019. So we've got a little ways. I know yeah. you just were, you're in the middle of post or just finished post on it. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, so I, um, I was in 
post on Insidious and Neil Moritz and Ori Marmer over at Original Film had this idea and this really cool script and so I went in and read it and you know like everything if I get interested in something I go big and it just anecdotally like with Insidious I I was like I had $2,000 left in my bank account and I literally went and and got my friend Jake Hare and did a great concept art and so when you audition just like writing where you have to do these bake-offs and write and write and write mm -hmm. and with directing you have to go do this whole presentation and so it's it's expensive and and, and uh, so yeah I, I, I saw the value in an escape room movie uh, I thought it could be really cool and psychological and there's like 2,000 escape rooms in LA yeah, they're alone. super popular yeah. super popular in Asia like I was back in New Hampshire a couple of days ago in this small town Laconia New Hampshire and there's like literally one right there sure so it's in the zeitgeist and you know, there's been some sort of smaller B horror film versions of it, but I thought, wow, this is an opportunity to do a really cool psychological puzzle. But I said the one thing is that each of these contestants, so to speak, the players need to be a puzzle in of themselves, and we have to answer like why they're there and mm -hmm. all. You know, if you get, if you're going to do a Ten Little Indians movie, you have to populate it with great characters who have backstories and stuff, and so. So yeah, we went and, and Neil and Ori and I did a big presentation with Sony at Sony. And uh, I got the job, yeah. And so we're we went to South Africa, Cape Town, amazing cruise. Um, you know, it was a ten million dollar movie, but it looks like a huge twenty five million dollar movie because of the value we got down there. We mm -hmm. shot for forty seven days, thirteen days of principal. I was forty seven days of principal, thirteen days of splinter unit, and uh, I was doing tank work and. And so uh, Cape Town, though very far away, you know, it has great resources. And my Steadicam operator is like one of the best in the country, my focus puller. And so it was, it was awesome. That's great. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like a beautiful, uh, lavish version of Saw without the gore in a way. It's the way I describe it. It's, you know, there's, there's beautiful, there's an ice room and then there's a billiard, billiard room where the whole room is going to be flipped upside down. So really cool imagery mm. set against all these real puzzles. These kids are, these, these, these players are, um, trying to solve right. you know, or they die. You know? Which is great. I mean, two or three years ago, I had never heard of an escape room. Right. And then all of a sudden, they're just they're everywhere. They're super fun, and the good ones are really cinematic. Like, you'll go into a Cold War bunker, and you'll be rooting around a bunch of spy dossiers. Mm. And you solve one puzzle, and then, like, the hidden map on the wall that was there the whole time. You just didn't see it. The black light turns on, and then oh, there's a map there. Yeah. So they're really visually interesting, and, and I'm terrible at them because I'm bad at puzzles, and I'm bad at pretty much anything um but my, my writer and her boyfriend were really good at it so i would just stand in the corner like let me know when we get out right. you know and it's surprisingly stressful because you have this hour to get out and you just feel like you you know they see the clock ticking down and so it's great for team building it's great for dates or sure. friends and and uh so they're really cool have you done one i have never done okay one. but every, like your instagram feed is full of oh we're in the escape room and yeah everyone's doing them. yeah there's yeah. there's one in hollywood where you go in and like you're in a serial killer's lair and there's like blood in the, oh, in, the, in, the in the tub and then it it drains and yeah there's something in the tub and then there's like a you go through a meat freezer and there's like a hole in the back of the fridge wow. and you climb through into another room yeah it's they're really cool hmm <laughs> i guess i'll have it's to a good way to spend yeah. a night yeah no that's awesome unless you're a real killer and in which case you know you probably want to just do that <laughs> or if you go to the escape room with a an actual real killer, killer yeah. Then, yeah. Then there's probably better things you could do. Um, 
what sort of advice would you have out there? Because your story, I think, is, is great in that you, you know, didn't come through that, you know, I sent them a script and I got an agent and then this, they sold me here. And, you know, you actually, you know, sort of ground it out, you know, through the trenches and, and, and found your own way. Um, but what advice would you have out there for, for you know, aspiring screenwriters and filmmakers? Um, on the writing side, I mean, I, you know, read. I don't read enough, and I, I think you don't get better unless you're reading. I mean, that's mm. Stephen King's, who I often listen to, talks about that. And yeah. you just, you're not going to get better if you're not reading people that are smarter than you and better writers than you. you know? And so if you're just in your own head the whole time, it's not gonna, you're not going to get better. And, so, and try to live life as a writer. You have to have life experiences. It's not enough to just have, you know, be 22 and went to college. Like, go out, travel, donate some time, like meet people you right. know, um, uh, that are different than you. So that you have these different experiences. Uh, in terms of the just the application of it all, I just think it's you can't quit. You know, uh, you have to just stick it stick it out. And one of the biggest things you have to figure out is how do you support yourself during the lean years. And I was I was broke for 15 years, and it was really hard. And you have to figure out ways. Whether for me it was editing, or occasionally I would do extra work. Frankly, there was nothing. There was a time I did. I was an extra. Um, not an extra. I was a uh, what are they called? And they uh, stand in. No, when they're helping in production, um, production assistant. Oh. Jeez, sorry. <laughs> what are those plebeians <laughs> called? People that get me my coffee. Have them washed. <laughs> yeah, this production assistant on the Academy Awards when um, Bill Conan, who's uh, who I know socially and is a friend, he hooked me up because he was directing it that year, and it was a hard. Yeah, I had a project had fallen apart and I was driving all these New York dancers around. I remember it was a cold, rainy time here in LA and I just felt I just felt like I was at a low point in my life because I was broke as hell, nothing was working out. I'm you know, watching Beyonce and Hugh Jackman dance and perform and I'm like, I'm a fucking nobody. Right. But you know what? I did what I had to do to make money to survive and there's no shame in that. I think the shame is when you start to, and you know, you were, we were talking a little bit about passion and it's, you're not always going to feel passion. Like some days I wake up manic and I'm excited, but other days I'm just like, oh, this sucks. I've been thinking, you know, you, when you're writing something, it's a fucking marathon. It's not instantaneous results. If you want instantaneous results, go cut wood. Like it's not, you know, it's, it's, and so that you have to learn to be patient with yourself. It's a long, long, long process. Um, and so, so there's that advice. And then uh, you have to be stable. Like if you're partying a lot, like I was in my early 20s, um, not going to work out well for you. Yeah, just saying. Like, <laughs> right. yeah, you know, being sober for me was a, personally, was a huge change in my life. I, was, I hadn't drawn a, a sober breath since... 16 I was like 25 when I kind of was like you know came out of my haze mm. and that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was present for stuff sure. and you look I'm not gonna if you like to have binge weekends and get drunk or whatever that's your business but for me it was it was a it was it was an all-consuming thing and I was a lot of fabulous parties and meeting lots of fabulous people but I wasn't doing the work I wasn't actually showing up on a daily basis and and 
with writing in particular, it's it's the self-discipline. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have a deadline, you'll find any reason in the world to to not deliver. And so, and that and it's the same. It's like it's like a lifestyle thing. It's like a diet or working out. If you don't have the discipline, you're not going to make it. You're not just. It's not going to happen. You know. If you're fine, and if you have to look at really look at and I do it believe me I procrastinate there's been years at a time where I've just oh I think about that script and I, I like my friend Landon again Chris who I love he's, he's the type of motherfucker who goes he's like I'm going at 8am he works for 5 hours and he's done by like 1 and, you, and he's like clockwork because he treats it like a job and that's the only way you you know and it's been great when these smaller writing jobs that we've had where you do have a deadline because it's amazing what you get done when you have a gun to your head right you know so so that's a little bit of that keep your shit in line you know show up every day try to get something done be organized it's not about it's not about the parties it's not about the it's about the work and that's and that's the biggest thing i think ultimately I had to learn personally it was I was you know I was around a lot of very successful people and I thought just by nature of being in these rooms and these parties and stuff that I had arrived and Mm. like and and that wasn't couldn't be further from the truth it's about it's about showing up every day and working you know whatever that is you know and uh, and I will say also just lastly like for me there, there's not one way to, to get where you need to go. I have friends who would say, choose one thing and laser focus. But for me, that wasn't my experience. I kind of went, you know, right. to find my way. So I, my feeling is try everything. See that you don't like it. Try building a set. Work on the production design side. Try acting. Go to an acting class. Learn how to say a monologue. Like, do all these things so that you can definitively, with empirical experience, choose. Yeah. Right. You said when, when you have gone some of these fabulous parties, you you know felt like you'd made it. Yeah. When did you actually feel like you've made it? Now that you I still don't. I mean, okay. you know, you just. <laughs> and that's the thing is, I, I, it, it's a slow iterative process. Like you start kind of going, wow, I kind of am starting to feel like a public figure. Like I remember seeing my my first uh wikipedia page had been mm. loaded up and you know there's been times before where you know i would try to do it myself and then they're like you know to be self-important but then it just suddenly pops up but uh i think J- james Wan, like when he when he publicly said how much he loved the taking deborah logan and just unsolicited was just like really grandfather like said this is a movie that i find really great i was like wow i we did something here and because when you get nothing feels better than when you get some love from somebody that you respect so much you know absolutely Um, yeah and but but in terms of like you know arriving and it's still i never feel like i know what i'm doing and that's the other it's your i think it's a sham if you do and a lot of directors frankly overcompensate for their own insecurity by being dicks Right. And that's just not my style. I'm very comfortable knowing what I don't know. And I hire great people. And then it's, I, I love to create a collegial environment where people are really, you know, because really at the end of the day, the director is managing teams. And, you know, you have your vision and you set it in motion and stuff. But if you can't, if you can't get people to want to all work towards the same goal and if you're operating through division and stuff, I'm kind of now not answering your question, but um, my point is, you know, we're stronger together. So, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> we're stronger together. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> As a or team. It became like a Come ar- go army. Like. <laughs> Be Navy. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, it, it was an absolute pleasure, Adam. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you. Um, and he is at Adam Robitel. That's R-O-B-I-T-E-L on both Instagram and Twitter. So be sure to follow him on both. Um, and be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com, for more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing. Thanks again, Adam. Thank you. Much My appreciate pleasure. It. Take care. And thank you all for watching or listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Taking over the universe when I'm using words. Every time I do the work, I be leaving them stupid hurt. You was right, I'm going crazy when I do the verse, but it do not matter. Mad Hatter, I'm feeling like Lucy Bird. Little short.